This is the first of a two-part deep dive into the Hellraiser franchise, and regular contributor Mr. Lee Beckman will be along for the ride. And when I say ride, at times I mean literally, because we recorded this in the late summer of 2021 while on a road trip, at least the first half of it. And then we did a couple of reviews over the phone, and then we did a few reviews in person. The audio will reflect this. There's a little bit of a hum during the road trip, but I think it's totally listenable. The phone sounds like it's on phone, and the regular conversation sounds neat and tidy. But the deeper we get into Hellraiser, the better the quality of the audio will be. Not that the audio is particularly bad, I just wanted to make you aware of it. If you have feedback for Rankin Review, you can send that to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. If you're looking for other things to plug into your ears, there is the Terror Table Podcast and the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, both out of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, where I do my podcasting. And you should go into this Hellraiser podcast expecting there to be spoilers and expecting there to be coarse language. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. We drop every other Wednesday. Mr. Lee Beckman, or Lee Beckman, yep. Lee Beckman, yep. sometimes rank and review champion, probably current rank and review champion, who knows? Fingers crossed. Fingers this crossed. podcast is going to drop sometime in the far distant future. Whoa. Um, so we're, we're on the highway, and you can probably tell there's a little bit difference in sounding episode audio-wise, but the whole episode isn't going to be this way because... This is going to be an epic dive into the Hellraiser franchise, and especially with the first few movies, uh, um, but I think generally with the, at least the vibe of the better entries of the franchise, when we talk about Hellraiser, we're basically talking about Clive Barker, or the vibe of Clive Barker. The first couple are kind of taken right out of the text of Clive Barker, and the rest are all trying to sort of play that same vibe to some to varying degrees of success, let us say. So, I would ask, what what's your interest in the Hellraiser franchise, and uh, do you have an opinion on Clive Barker? Well, as a franchise, especially with Rank and Review, I'm just more of a completist. You, know, you just want to do all of them? There's nothing exciting particularly to you about Hellraiser? Uh, no, there's lots of things to be excited about Hellraiser. I always, uh, originally, I always kind of took the Hellraiser series not really as a horror movie franchise, but more of a dark fantasy. 
I have since come around again saying, oh no, this is a horror franchise. Um, there's some really scary elements. Um, I find, I don't even want to call them villains, but I find the Cenobites just an intriguing force. A lot more than, say, the creatures in Phantasm or Critters. You know, Jason Voorhees' motivation, um, you know, it, it, there's a little bit of personal to it. But the Cenobites, for me, um, they're, they're like apolitical beings and they're just doing their job. I think they really enjoy their job. But if you play with the buzzle fox, that's your problem. Yeah. Whether or not you knew that there were consequences, whether or not you knew this was a gateway into yeah. hell, or whether this was your life's mission to meet yeah. a demon and talk to them, yeah. well, they're just going to introduce you to this world of torment that yeah. I guess the idea is if you endure enough torment, the torment becomes pleasure and like, yeah. turns it around on you. And all of this sort of very specific uh, body horror, yeah. Clyde Barker's fleshy horror, I guess you there's like in the in his work especially there's a percentage of eroticism too that they try yeah. to reflect in some of these movies but mainly it lives to make you uncomfortable and he wants to cross lines like um he's it's not just about being sliced he's going to describe that slice and the way the wound opens and how the muscles spread open and like uh He's not going to spare you any kind of detail, especially in his text, and they yeah. try to not to in the movies. Um, and the visualization of the Cenobites was something that I remember thinking when they first came out. I remember watching, the, especially the second and third movie, while there was still some excitement, quote-unquote, attached to the franchise a little bit. Yeah. I was kind of into it because I was into horror. Yeah. But I remember thinking, I don't know if these Cenobites are going to age well with their leather and their sunglasses. Yeah. And watching, and we're, so far, as we said, we've only watched the first four movies together at this point in the recording. Yeah. I mean, I've seen them all before, but for the purposes of reviewing them. Yeah. Um, they've aged better than I would have thought. Yeah. The Cenobites, specifically. Some of the filmmaking and some of the other things about them, obviously, yeah. like any other franchise, we're going to see the evolution of film. Yeah. We're also going to see the difference between, uh, you know, the big screen, screen production sort of ambitious numbers of the early Hellraisers yeah. to the increasingly, how, how you know, what can we do with a minimum budget and still, yeah. with somewhat of a straight face, call this a Hellraiser movie. Yeah. Right? And sometimes, like, that challenge can make interesting results. But more often, you know, yeah. especially when you get up to, like, nine, ten movies, keeping it fresh almost isn't no longer part of the yeah. equation. What's intriguing, there's lots of things to be intrigued about about the Hellraiser series. It's not exactly a fun film series. Um, like with, with Halloween and the Fridays and even the Chuckies, there's, there's still a lot of fun to them. Uh, even when it gets nasty or tense or heaven forbid scary. Where there's not a lot of ha-ha moments with the Hellraiser. But yet I'm, I'm still intrigued and lured in and have seen at least the first four films more than once, which kind of says something. Yeah. I can't say that about another franchise, the Saw franchise, where it, it there's not a lot of fun. It's, it, it's definitely mucked in its mire and, you know, postmodernism and just dreariness. Well, it's sort of the next generation's horror movie, Saw. So on some level... 
we're duty bound to resent it a little bit. Yeah. But I think it could be said uncontroversially that it is significantly less fun. Yeah. Than most franchises, even things like more modern entries like the Final Destination. Yeah. What's interesting to me going back to Hellraiser too is that we have lots of monsters, but it's hard to even necessarily call them monster movies. Yeah. Yeah. The monster will have conversation with you. Yeah. Usually the monster has some of the best lines in the movie. Especially the first one, yep. And Clive Barker loves the monsters, and uh, instead of shoving it down our throats, like uh, he kind of did in Nightbreed, I think. Yeah. I think with the Hellraiser, the more we learn about the world and the more we come to understand the world, we don't necessarily have to like or quote cheer for, but our understanding of the Cenobites makes them... uh, I guess less evil, yeah, but not less frightening. Yeah, I also love like there's a hierarchy to them. Like there, there are leaders. There's a chain of command in, in a lot of ways, and that's definitely explored in the second one. Um, so I, I find that element exciting. You mentioned earlier about the prosthetic effects. Um, they are at times amazing. <laughs> and that's another attractive allure. Um, just even, like, well, I don't want to talk too much about it because I think we'll discuss it in Hellraiser. But I re- clearly remember where I was the first time I watched Hellraiser in the afternoon. And when those skinless beings start popping up, I had never seen anything like that. So there's a big shout out to the special effects and props department, the sets, like, even if you don't like the story and find them revolting, uh, I think critics can agree that on a technical level, it's outstanding work. So it's, it, you know, if you love prosthetics, if you love special effects, if you lo- love the, you know, old school take on horror in that regard, there's a lot to like with Hellraiser. But on top of delivering the goop and the effects and, like, the old-school prosthetics, but as we get later into it, more yeah. so into bad CGI, but still, yeah. uh, you, it gives you all of that. It gives you the sex, it gives you the violence, which you understand. Yeah. But a lot of horror movies, that's all that it is that makes them, quote-unquote, adult. Or, yeah. oh, that must suck. That's all it would take to make it be adult or R-rated. Yeah. Like, uh that content yeah these stories feel like adult stories yeah it's not as simple as a guy kills a bunch of kids at a camp there's there's stuff going on there's a whole other world that's being discovered yeah it's like a a matrix world with demons you know beyond our world there's a whole other universe that's going on and uh, they don't pay attention to us typically and we don't pay attention to them but generally speaking, you don't want to cross their paths. And that was something that I think I really, really missed when I was younger, when I first saw it. Because, yeah, you're, you're right. Um, you know, Michael Meyer just goes around killing people, killing teenagers, same with, with, you know, with Jason and, you know, Freddie and whatnot, where there are a lot more mature themes going on with the Hellraiser series that, as a adult horror fan, I can definitely appreciate definitely plays the sort of eroticism card and yeah. there's also people who are corrupted by their pursuit of power and yeah. mortality yeah. Um, there is the difference between somebody who stumbles upon the Cenobites and somebody who seeks them out Yeah, and uh, the sort of you know who draws to what and I love the fact that the Cenobites know that yeah. um, that you know in the second one spoilers when one character has been tricked into opening the box the Cenobites know that that's not who they're really after they're after the person who you know 
set up this whole thing. Um, and I like that about them. That um, I love that they cohere, or at least, you know, they strict to their sense of code. Where I don't think a lot of the other movie monsters, at least from our generation, like the '80s, and I'm, I'm referring once again to like you know Leatherface and all of them, like they just want to kill. Where they, for the Cenobites, to do their job, they have to follow these rules. And I and I like I said I, I appreciate that. And you wouldn't think it'd be such a job to make it more complicated, but most franchises are dirt simple. And yeah. say what you will about the Hellraiser franchise. And by the way, I will say some shitty things. Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah 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 yeah. Like these, uh, these aren't without criticism. But every Hellraiser is not the same. Yeah. And like they take swings. They don't always connect, but yeah. they take swings. Yeah. Um, it sort of starts very, very Clive Barker's visceral adult, like I say, sexual gross-out world. Mm-hmm. And then it sort of progresses into almost a Twilight Zone type series where we yeah. have the stories about cruel fates right. almost where, where the Cenobites interject, sometimes very minimally in what's yeah. going on. So it's wide open, and that's why we've got ten movies and counting to look at. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about the world of Hellraiser before we start the reviews? Um, no, not a whole lot. I think mean, we should save, probably save them for each individual film and, you know, time management and all that. So um, I'm happy to be here once again, talking horror movies with my best friend. Uh, we're on the road. It's awesome. Uh, so Lee and Larry versus Hellraiser. Yeah. seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. Um, yeah. I saw them review Hellraiser and he just 
fucking hated it, hated it, hated it. And I actually looked up his print review of it. Yeah. And I don't always agree with Ebert. I had a, a good measure of respect for the man. Yeah. But I don't always agree with I, him. But I will say he he's a good writer. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I had one of one of this is one of the times when reading his reviews, I couldn't believe how completely he missed it. Yeah. In the movie, like reading it, he gave it a half a star review. Yeah. He quoted this famous Stephen King quote, which basically launched Clive Barker on this side of the ocean, saying, yeah. "I have seen the future of horror, and, it's and it is Clive Barker." Yeah. And in the review, Ebert says. Maybe he was talking about a different Clive Barker. <laughs> He's like really shitty about it. And uh, he just takes the plot at its most rudimentary point, which there's this woman had had an affair with her husband's brother. Yeah. He's come back to life, but in order to get his flesh and form back, he needs to take victims. Yeah. So she is seducing people, bringing them to the house so he can kill them. And it's that element of the story is kind of familiar. It's sort of somewhere between vampiric or yeah. serial killer familiarity. And that was the focus of his hatred and energy on the review. Yeah. Which is completely subtracting all of the imagination, yeah. all of the lurid sort of adult eroticism and themes that I talked about in the introduction. Yeah. And the really solid execution of this low-budget horror movie by a first-time writer, really. Yeah. Clive Barker had done some work on the stage, and he'd been involved in other horror productions. Lee and I have talked about Rawhead Rex in the past, yeah. but this was his first movie. Yeah. And I would not have guessed that this was somebody's first movie. Yeah. It's also his best movie. As a director, yeah. yep. it is easily his best movie. Yeah. Um, I think maybe it gets tougher when more money's involved and everything like that. But... Yeah, if you look at Hellraiser at its bare beastly, bestial minimum, yeah. it's sex and violence. There's a bunch of people lured to this demonic creature who eats them, to steals people's skins, and uh, yeah. But to dismiss it as just this sort of wanton, violent slasher movie and nothing else, all due respect, Mr. Ebert, I think you decided you didn't like this movie before you sat down. That's certainly how it feels. And like I've said so many times in the podcast with these types of movies, if you go in fighting with the movie, you're going to win. I think that this is a very strong movie, and it's one of the movies that like, I liked since I was a kid, but unlike the way I liked like Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, yeah. this wasn't fun. This was like weirdly more serious and scary. And that's why I liked it, and that's why it wasn't just so scary, but it had this sort of respect. I didn't go to it again and again, because I wanted it to stay scary. Yeah. And uh, I've always been a big fan of Hellraiser, and watching it again with you the day before yesterday, yeah. uh, I, it didn't change my mind. Nope. I have some problems with it that I'll get into, but yeah. this is just where I want to start. Yeah. If it looks like it's something you've seen before, it both is and isn't. Yeah. So uh, don't judge it by its cover. That's where I'm starting. Yeah. Well, I think the film struck a huge nerve with Ebert. I've kind of noticed that, where films that I agree with you, that he is completely wrong. This is rumor, but, and who knows whether this is true or not, but rumor has it that Mr. Mr. Ebert, and I guess this also goes into the question, what's your thoughts on S&M, Larry? I mean, to each their own. It's not, for me, it's not my thing, yeah. particularly, but if you're into some kinky stuff, you're into some kinky stuff. Yeah. Generally speaking, I I don't really have that in much interest in what's going on in your bedroom. Yeah. As long as it's between two consenting adults, I say have fucking at it. Yeah. Um, um, rumor has it that Mr. Ebert, 
it was no stranger to a more exotic, rougher fare in his sexual life. Um, there's a story that you know people went over to his house and, and they saw one of those swing chairs or you know, one of those swings. I don't know how this became about Ebert's sex life. Well, no. <laughs> the reason why I say that is because part of what is Hellraiser is this fetish and desire for S&M. The and, pain, pleasure, and The pain, pleasure, and sex. Yeah. Um, I can understand it a little bit without going too much into detail myself. So I just kind of got the impression, I think that might have just really kind of st struck a nerve with Ebert. I'm only... He's vil it's vilifying, you know. Yeah. I'm only, like, I'm pontificating or guessing it and stretching at this point. Who knows? Maybe he, like... I'm trying to unravel the mind of, of a dead critic, and that's not yeah, my not sure. But I bet you, I mean, I don't know this, but I think it's a fair assumption that the, you yeah. know, black leather culture, yeah. for lack of a better name, yeah. is into the Hellraiser franchise oh. for maybe different reasons than, oh. than, than we are. Yeah. Um, but to me, it's just sort of the danger thing. Like, uh, yes, the, there's sort of pain and yeah. quote-unquote violence in it, uh, implied in the sex act. It's a penetrative act, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, first time women have sex, it's painful. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, yes, I understand all of the things, these deep psychological things that are being played with. Yeah. And it's so funny the way other horror movies don't acknowledge that. But like, sex is so profoundly psychological. Yeah. This relationship between um, the two people having the affair, Frank and. Um, Sorry, I'm just looking at Julia. Yeah. Julius and Julia and Frank are sort of the big bads of the the. the movie. They are the villains of the piece. They are. But like that's 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 important to, to, to state here. Their passion for each other seems like really like when there's sex, it's just this intense sex, and yeah. and uh, like she's excited by the violence and the killing. She's horrified by seeing him without the skin, yeah. but so excited that he's back that like. All of these mixed soup of emotions, bad and good, all at once. Yeah. That's where I get to it. it I, like the whips and chains stuff. To me, that's like the hellscape punishment aspect of it. Yeah. Like that wouldn't work for me. In a way, it would be nice for you if you were into that. And they, you know, brought out the chains and the whips to torment you, and you just had this big shitty grin. Yeah. Face. But yeah. no, I think it's about torment for me. Yeah. But like, if you want to make it about something else, I'm sure you could. If any, like if nothing else, these movies are wide open for interpretation. Oh yes, I mean that. Um, one thing that I love about just the genre of horror, and it's not just film, it's literature, it's art, um, is that the horror genre, and it's not the only genre that does this, but topics that are taboo are explored in the horror genre, whether it's the psychology, the psychology of rape, or in Jeepers Creepers, and this is one thing that I wanted to defend with it. I mean, in a lot of ways, that artist is talking about his own huge, awful, demonic flaws. And to try and examine subjects that a lot of people just, oh, don't want to touch and explore it in the area of fantasy, like not physically acting it out, but putting it out in a creative mode. I think ultimately is healthy. You know, well, related I, back to Hellraiser, like yeah, what, what well, does it tap into for you specifically? Well, I I think if anything, uh, you know, Clive Barker was raised a, a, in a pretty deep 
Catholicism is he raised in, or I believe some 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 form of the Christian faith. In his, a lot of his books, yeah, Christian iconography takes a real beating. Yeah, he loves shattering a stained glass window or, yeah. or blood coming out of a statue of yeah. Mary, or you like yeah. all. He really likes to stick it to visually uh, upsetting imagery towards that. Yeah. So I've interpreted that as being something personal. Yeah. Well, and it, it's so consistent in a lot of his work, so yeah. I think it's that's a pretty fair observation. Yeah. Um, I think exploring the line, sometimes the thin line between pleasure and pain, um, is also like some people just don't even want to touch that. Um, How dare you, sir? So to examine S and M, even though we now live in a society where Fifty Shades of Grey was a best-selling. Uh, series and a lot of housewives or whomever got all excited about it. Um, it, it it's becoming more and more talked about. But you and I remember there was a time and age where homosexual sex. Psh, we, we 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 won't even talk about that. I mean, we're aware that it exists. Yeah, but, it, but now if if you want to physically see it, you know, all you have to do is you type a few things on the computers and oh. Um, you know, and there's literature, there's all kinds of things, oh, you know. Fear of their own sexuality. I would like to get it back to hell. Sorry, if we can. sorry. But I would say fear of your own desires. Yes. That's what I, I thought you were leading to. Here. Okay. So well, I'll go right. there. <laughs> oh, there's that, but there's also, um, there are some people where it's never enough. You know, there's, uh, there's, there's always stories of, you know, the wealthy people, whether like, like the game or something else where they have, they've accumulated so much stuff, so much experience, but it's never enough. Yeah. And eventually it will be there's those uh, forbidden desires or pleasures as it's talked about where you've you've gone too far like you didn't need to explore this well it's it's the paradoxes of life right we are most frightened of in some ways the yeah. things that we want yeah either because we won't get them or that getting them we won't be what we really hoped it to be yeah um, and uh, being scared of that uh, of our, uh, the forbidden fruit being the thing that you'll be obsessed with. Yeah. You, you can't have it, so you must have it. Yeah. That's very Hellraiser. I think going to some of the weaker aspects of the film, Yeah. Claire Higgins, the actress who's playing Julia, yeah. is to be a temptress, a seductress. Yeah. And I think what you needed here, and I think she's a good actress, I think yeah. she plays the obsessive part yeah. very well. Yeah. And she plays like her reaction to the situation without going over into crazy town, like her performance is good. Yeah. But I needed to believe her as an intense sexual lure. Yeah. And I just don't. Yeah. In this movie. I don't necessarily see what Frank sees in her until yeah. he's already been killed and she's, you know, doing anything he asks. Yeah. And until he completely turns around and betrays her. Yeah. She is all all on board everything he does. And I think that Frank is played by Shan Chapman might be giving the weakest performance in the movie. It's very one note. Like, he is evil. It's no matter what line comes out of his mouth, yeah. he wants you to know that he's a bad guy. Yeah. yeah. And I just, that, like, I find that kind of distracting. Yeah. Well, it's Snidely Whiplash performance. Yeah. Uh, like, I'm the villain, see? Andrew um, Robinson, who plays Larry, a character named Larry who is supposed to be likable, if maybe a little bit pathetic. Yeah. He's got living this, like, sexless, like, totally, like, whipped life with this, he'd be cuckolded by this woman. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like that actor, and again, it was, for him, it was against type. Scorpio from Dirty Harry, He was baby. the villain of Dirty Harry, and he was not meek and mild in any way. But 
it's always been a disappointment the way that character dead ended or if his character must have dead ended that we didn't get to see his final moments yeah when he you know truly saw for a brief second who his wife was yeah and what was in like what, like I, I I don't know if you like I feel it was deliberate that wasn't a missing scene or anything yeah. like that that was a choice that they made but for me I would like that the best performance is Ashley Lawrence yep and we're going to see more of her in the movies going forward. Yeah. And it's a lot to ask because she comes in sort of a grounded daddy's girl, uh, believing in the world and what she sees. Yeah. And the scene where she sees the Cenobites yeah. cracks her world open and oh. almost her psyche out in half. Well, I don't blame her. <laughs> of course. And this is something that is almost always better achieved in Barker's written work than yeah. in the films. Yeah. And th this goes to the H.P. Lovecraft thing too. When you see something that so defies your idea of the world and reality and your, you know, your, your sort of compass of yeah. like, your barometer to the world is completely shattered yeah. by walking into the wrong one and seeing yeah. a, a skinless man wearing a suit. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Uh, she plays that really well because there's a couple scenes in this movie where she has just lost her mind. Yeah. She pulls it back. She gets it back together. But yeah. It's really hard to do that without drowning it into hysterics. Yeah. And uh, I, and again, really young in her acting career. Yeah. I think she gives the performance of the movie. No, she's she's very very good. I never really saw it as a false note. There's a couple of scenes where her you know inexperience might come through a little bit, but it, it, she's she's pretty strong. Barker is a good director, um, and it feels at time like very much a theatrical play in certain elements as well. Um, there are some immortal lines uh, that come out of Hellraiser that, you know, hip-hop artists have sam have sampled it. Well, if it's in hip-hop, it must be immortal. Yeah, well, okay, <laughs> fair enough. But uh, just to show you that how respected and loved Hellraiser is within the horror film community, will tear your soul apart. You say that line and, like, any horror fan will nod their head. No tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. Yeah. Well, and you get the feeling like Pinhead, when he's not torturing people, yeah. must be reading like philosophy and oh, Shakespeare yeah. and shit. Like, he, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have such wonderful sights uh, to show you. Psychologically on point to know what to say to just yeah. really trouble people. Yeah. Um, I enjoy also the Faustian kind of element to this. Like, this is, once again, people have made deals with the devil and they're trying to get out of it. Um, it's also in the second one, they do get away from it somewhat by the third and definitely the fourth. But I always love a good Faust tale and I thought Hellraiser is very much that. But you don't necessarily have to know that you're making the deal is the catch here. Yeah. Usually it's some personal flaw that will lead you to your fate, or, or, or the, you know, the naivety to think that you can yeah. outsmart the devil. Yeah. Like, anybody who thinks that, that they got the devil beat, they're gonna they're gonna be taught a hard lesson. Oh yeah. No. Uh, but second... in this one, you can just find this puzzle box and fuck around with it, not knowing what it is, and your life is completely undone. But I sort of get the idea that the but... people that are seeking out the box kind of do. Um, like Frank. I think somewhat new. He'd been studying it. That doctor from the second one. So I don't think the people, a lot of the people that eventually when they get to the stranger, if you will, like what is your pleasure, that they sort of know that something dark and sinister is going to be open if you solve this box. They still, but yet they still keep going. 
Well, again, that's the difference between the, the, the type of characters you're running. There's the people who are seeking from power or immortality yeah. or to know more than any other man. Yeah. And then there are people who find a puzzle box. Yeah. You can stumble into it or you can seek it out, but it, it doesn't necessarily change your fate, just sort of what it means to you. Yeah. Uh, one thing I just have to mention before we wrap this up, yeah. uh, the practical special effects. I'm glad you mentioned most special effects. specifically Frank's resurrection out of the floor. Ooh. Like we just watched it the day before yesterday, yeah. and it is still yeah. rock solid. Yeah, it looks fantastic. Yeah, and the whole muscul musculature stuff. Yeah, that like uh, I remember when I was a kid for some years, I was just bothered bothered by the blood smear all over the clothes and everything like that. Yeah, watching it now, maybe because it was a high def motion, I was just hypnotized yeah. by the musculature and the makeup detail and the yeah. glistening gore yeah. on them. Yeah, and you, 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 you're listening to them like character is still very important to Clive Barker. So even though this guy is all covered in gore, he's not screaming. He's not like yeah, he still has motivations. He's still this evil yeah. Frank. Yeah. So um, for all the reasons we've talked about, enjoy the movie. But for some reason, when we talk about like the great special effects stalwarts of the '80s, yeah, sometimes uh, Hellraiser gets forgotten. There is the thing, there is the fly, there is the blob, but yeah. Hellraiser has some truly great special effects. Oh, and, um, uh, yeah. yeah, I just wanted to make sure we hit that. No, I like I said, as I said earlier, I remember the first time watching Hellraiser, and my jaw hit the floor when Frank gets resurrected. But anytime he's in the movie up until the end, uh, when he finally gets his brother's skin, spoilers. Oh no. Um, this movie came out in 1987. Yeah, I, I know. If they haven't seen it, it's kind of on them. Yeah, I know, I know. But um, just the attention to detail of all, like the epidermis is gone and yeah. it's just all that, the flesh. And like my little teenage brain was just like, what is this? I, I had never seen anything like that. Um, and that, I think that still stands out to this day. It's, I, I, I you can make references, you know, Hell, Hellraiser is taking some, you know, a couple of things from other pieces of literature or other pieces of film, but can you think of another film quite like Hellraiser? Because I can't. Well, again, if you were just to read the synopsis, this woman's like luring people to be killed by this demonic guy in her house. Yeah. Like, it sounds like a movie you've seen before. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. Yep. And um, that's usually Clive Barker. Like, yeah. uh, uh, you could say that Candyman, like I've said, is just a variation of Bloody Mary. Yeah. But that would be doing real short service yeah. to Candyman. Yeah. And I do agree that, and it could be the actor's choices along with the director's, but the relationship of Frank and Julia th themselves doesn't quite work. I mean, yes, the sex intense and erotic, but... We like neither of them, so yeah. we don't care. We know that Frank is evil, and we don't know why she loves him despite this evil. And like, there's yeah. no reason for her to really even seem to be surprised when he she he stabs her after yeah. all that she's done. Yeah. Literally rescuing his soul from hell and feeding him victims so that he can take physical yeah. form again. And still, he kills her with indifference. Yeah, he's almost disgusted by the fact that she worships him so. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, 
there was little impact to that for me i had to it was all about uh, christy uh, ashley lawrence's character dealing with yeah. this and she sees that her her stepmother is evil that that fairy tale aspect there yeah her, her stepmother is evil and her father just can't yeah. or won't see it yeah and it's this inevitable destruction of the family and he's always making excuses for her as well and again we see this again and again, again and again and again um poor um What's the daughter's name? Kirsty. Kirsty. Yeah, yeah. Kirsty's boyfriend also. <laughs> Poor boyfriend. Like he's just along for the ride. Yeah. Um, what? Uh, getting back to the special effects. There's a great monster in about in the third act of Hellraiser where it's got it's climbing along the wall yeah. and and yes, like you can tell it's there's a certain robot robot likeness to it with the jaw moving up and down. But just the look of the creature, it's great. Well, and it doesn't sort of apply to the rules of your standard body thing. Like, yeah. it's got all these sort of flailing appendages, and it doesn't look real or balanced, or it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Again, I keep going back to Lovecraft. It, like, hurts your, your eyes a little bit to look at it. Yeah. And who knows what kind of things would be in hell. Right? Yeah, yeah. I um, Also, this time, because I think I've seen Hellraiser now five or six times, and maybe just as it was, it was the medium in which we saw it, the sound was really good, like, I, and I yeah, hadn't. I think we had we've had it worked on since because I'm watching it this time. I agree with you. It looked and sounded better than I think I've ever yeah, seen. Yeah, but I, there were sounds that I had missed, and and then that's maybe something when you see something over again, yeah. you pick up things. But there's a lot of sort of religious chants at some point. Um, they do the whole cliche of you know saying names like over like Christy, Christy, Christy. Know your flesh over and over again, which can venture sometimes into parody. Other horror films do it, so that would be another criticism. But this time, I just noticed that there were like almost religious-like chants in the soundtrack or in the sound edit that I hadn't noticed before. That was a nice touch. And this weird breath and, and just sort of details into it, like obviously because this is the. A book that he based on a book that he's written and he's been really close to the material. Yeah. Everything has been cared for and you can feel that. Yeah. And it, it still it still stands as a unique sort of original yep, yep. horror piece. So I'm all on board for Hellraiser. The vision is renewed.
two. Time to play. All right, Hellraiser 2, Hellbound. It is directed by Tony Randall, and largely the same cast is returning here. Yep. We have a new sort of uh, villain character here. Uh, sorry, Kenneth Crenham playing Chandler, this guy who was uh, aware of the, the, the box and yeah. the Cenobites and really curious. He's an obsessed uh, brain surgeon and right. psychiatrist. And uh, Christy has ended up in his facility after all that she has gone through. The police, well, she was at first catatonic when they found her. Yeah. And when she started talking about these demons and everything like that, there was no physical evidence to prove that she killed any of these people. But clearly she saw something that traumatized the shit out of her. Yeah. She's not under arrest, but she is under observation. Yeah. And, um, yeah, once the doctor realizes that this sort of plugs into this world that he's been studying... He has the bloody mattress from the crime scene brought to his house and uh, starts bringing Julia back to life by supplying her victims from his psychiatric facility. Uh, it's not really clear how he's pulling all this off, but we imagine he must be a very powerful, wealthy man. Yeah. Um, so he doesn't have everybody's best interests at heart. The focus is put on Kirsty, which is the good thing about the movie. The secondary character, who's played by Imogen Borman, Tiffany, yeah, um, I think is a little bit more problematic to me. Like, she's a mystery herself. Like, she has no identity that yeah. they're given her, and all she's really good at is solving puzzle puzzles. Yeah, and I guess they do tell us who she is and where she came from, but nothing we learn about that character feels like a payoff. Nothing that, nothing really comes from that character other than she's good at solving the puzzle box and that's helpful as a plot point yeah. later on such to a point that she serves the plot that, that it's almost helpful that she doesn't speak yeah it doesn't slow things down yeah uh, she's also just a strange looking person like she's just a uh, interesting face i don't know yeah. um but i wasn't as impressed by that aspect of the story generally like for the most part the script is more familiar like this is closer to deserving the review that hellraiser got from ebert yeah but what I like about it is the exploration of hell itself. Yep. When we see these worlds, like, all of a sudden the hallway becomes skewed and dark, and all of a sudden she's no longer in the hospital, and she's broken the barrier and starting to see this world, and how vast it is, and how not only is this world vast, this is just your hell. Yeah. Everybody has their own personal version of this, just yeah. as vast. There's, there's so many places and worlds to explore. Yeah. And... What Hellraiser 2 really did for me, when I, especially when I watched it originally, was like, say, how huge a world this Hellraiser universe could be, yeah. and the literally limitless creatures that we could see yeah. coming out of this abyss. Yeah. So, I like, again, the juicy special effects, and I guess, I think Claire Higgins is much more comfortable in her role as Julia, the seductress, this time around. Yeah. We're familiar with her, and she's like, now more evil than Frank. Yeah. She's finally figured Frank out. She had to get murdered and sent to hell, but yeah. now she gets it. <laughs> yeah. There is a kind of sympathy you have for her somewhat. She's still evil, but the scene where her and Frank meet up, you are totally on her side when she rips his heart out. Yeah. 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 It's like, no, like these are both bad people, but... 
But the funny thing is, like, when he literally says things like, you belong to me, I own you. Yeah. Up until the point he literally had stabbed her and sent yeah. her to hell. Yeah. He was right. Yeah. She would literally have done anything for him. Yeah. Um, and again, that he saw no value in that at all. Yeah. But again, that's going back to the original Hellraiser. Uh, Dr. Chatter sort of becomes the, the main villain uh, when we sort of as the movie progresses yeah. but we spend a lot of time in the first act with this guy Kyle Yeah, they seem to have jettisoned the boyfriend character yeah you know he, he's just given a sort of one line of oh yeah we, we, we the police released him he's gone home he decided that there was a little bit too much going on and that maybe Kirsty needed to sort of shut up but he just disappears but I like it almost feels like the writer changed his mind like initially that Kyle was going to be the new love interest Yeah, he was the guy who actually listened to Kirsty. he was the guy who saw through Chandler the evil doctor's, you know, choice to bring the stuff to his house instead of to the hospital or whatever. Um, and then all of a sudden they decided, nah, nah, this should just be about Christy. And they just killed him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily like a surprise death. We're not like, oh no. Yeah. But it's just, whether it was intentional or not, we start with one place with that character and yeah. it sort of abruptly dead ends. Whether or not that's a good or bad thing, I guess, could be debated. But yeah. I think that's true with a lot of things in the movie. They set stuff up only to just slap dead end them. Yeah. Uh, but if you were there for the creature effects and the visual scope, that's where it really pays off yeah. in part two. Yeah. Hollywood seems to be very much in love with the art of M.C. Escher. There's, oh, yes. there's even like, fam like the famous tessellation art paintings that are scattered throughout you know, Dr. Channing's office and desk. Uh, but when you actually get into hell and you look at these beautiful matte paintings or the set itself, like they, they're literally stealing from his works, but it looks amazing. Nolan does that too, but the set design and the special effects once again are stellar. Um, like a lot of Hollywood sequels, uh, it's bigger, you know, give us more, but it works in the throes of the narrative. Um, when they do get to hell, the movie does turn up a notch, energy-wise, uh, and we learn more of the universe, like apparently the god is Leviathan, whatever that means. Um, it's got this diamond, like elongated sort of diamond sphere-like thing that can it's a show... different variation on the box. Yeah, yeah. It, but it can show you your greatest sin or, in your, your, or your trauma in your life when this beam hits you, all these sort of fascinating things. Um, it also has some classic, like, strong Hellraiser-ish uh, images. Yeah. I love early in the film where she sees an image of what she assumes is her father. Yeah. Skinless in hell, steam coming off him, and he smears in blood in the wall. Yeah. I'm in hell, please help me. Yeah. Does yeah. this seem like a really good way to be spending your days? Yeah. Ooh. Uh, and uh, there's another scene where the doctor is sacrificing this guy on the mattress. And he's just some lunatic who's hallucinating. There's yeah. bugs and worms all over his body. Yeah. And he hands this dude a razor blade, and the guy just starts going to town on himself with his yeah. razor blade. And it's like, I've always remembered that scene as being one of the standout gore moments in the movie. Yeah. But this time I was just sort of like taking it back, and it just goes on yeah. and on and yeah. on. It goes on so long that you're starting to wonder, is this resurrection actually going to happen? Yeah. And then when you're sort of at the point where maybe not, it does. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those scenes, like, again, where the script and the characters would fail us, the imagination of the visuals kind of succeeded enough 
I mean, I can recognize the more of the flaws as I'm an old, older now than yeah. when I first saw it. When I first saw it, I kind of thought it was sort of amazing, just the, uh, the size and scape and the imagination of it. Yeah. Now I can see that it's a little bit rickety, but yeah, yeah still has those punctuating beats that scream, this is what a Hellraiser movie is. Yeah. And uh, we start seeing fewer of those, like in some of the later installments. It's amazing. I've seen that movie. I've seen Hellraiser 2. Um, I was talking about strong images that would identify it as being a Hellraiser film. Yeah. And then going forward. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. We get um, less of those. Uh, we learn more about the Cenobites. We learn that, um, that there's still humanity to them. Um, that if you can tap into their more human side, that you can relate them. And we find out that there's an order to the Cenobites. Even though Pinhead seems to be sort of the de facto leader, I, you were telling me in the original text they're more of a sort of... Um, it's like a hell's clergy. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, that apparently Cenobites is the, it's sort of like, yeah, the, the hell version of clergy. Yeah. Um, they're more of a collective. They work together, apparently, in the That's original. how I interpreted it. Yeah. I don't know if that's the specific interpretation. Yeah. That's the way I saw it. But you see a little bit of that. But we've got Cenobites fighting other Cenobites. Yeah, and there's a bit of a pecking order. And, yeah. like, they don't all get along. It's not all business as usual in hell. Yeah. <clears throat> so that, that to me, was sort of intriguing. Uh, the smackdown between Penhead and, and, and his cronies and the Dr. Channing Cenobite. Um, that as a kid, I was like, oh, 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 that's cool. And it's and it's the weakness of the Cenobites. They're their human side because Kirsty does eventually remind them of themselves. Yeah, like yeah. I, I do love that scene. And then that Doug Bradley, I know that's the actor's name, but the, his human character shows up and that essentially is- saves Kirsty. Well, spares her anyway. Yeah. Uh, but I like that it's not something that they had to fight with or to convince them of. Yeah. As soon as she says, you guys used to be human. Yeah. They all pause. Yeah. And they all recognize that that's true. Yeah. And, like, they don't doubt it at all. Yeah. But that hadn't occurred to them for so long. Like, yeah. It, it actually kind of takes the gas out of the, the, the engine for them for a second. Yeah. And I loved that, though. Like, it was, to me, it was kind of a heartbreaking moment. And they, and there's that scene, that brief moment where Kirsty and you know, the human pinhead look at each other and just smile and have this human connection amidst all this ugliness and torn flesh and, th- you know, monsters with long snake-like things coming out of their hand. It was uh, even when, as a teenager I was like, aww? So there's some really I, some, you know, well-powerful in Hellraiser 2. The story is muddled. Yeah. Um, it, 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 to me... When it works, it works. Yeah. When it doesn't, it doesn't. Everything, but, everything about hell works. The stuff before it, yeah. I like the stuff with the doctor, the psychiatrist, yeah. who sought out the Cenobites. When he is first transformed, he's terrified, and yeah. he goes through the same betrayal. He, he brought this woman back to life, and she delivers him to the hell that he says he wanted. So yeah. in one way, she's fucking him over, but in the other way, she is doing what he asks. Well, she's giving him exactly what he wants to think I has. And that's what I was going to say. Like when After he comes out of that box and he's been transformed, he has that great line where he's like, to think I hesitated. The amount of power and information that I've accessed. Yeah. Yeah, I went through a waking nightmare for that time, but... Yeah. Totally worth it. Yeah. And uh, again, like, what a what a what a crazy character. Yeah. Um, 
And um, going forward, we're going to be losing pretty much everybody now, except for very briefly Kirsty. Yep. Um, and then I think she shows up again, like episodes, episodes on. But don't forget Doug Bradley, though. Doug, well, Doug Bradley will be a mainstay as Pinhead, but I mean, I think the first three movies are, are like the real sort of mainstay Hellraiser movies. Yeah. And then we'll talk about the Alan Smithy film. And then I think there's just a different age of Hellraiser when we get to the direct video. Yeah. But I think as far as script, story, and character, the first one is Hellraiser. Yeah. As far as visual aesthetic, the second film is Hellraiser yep. to me. Yep. So they're they're necessary. Like uh, uh, it's nowhere near as good as the first Hellraiser, but I like it and consider it sort of part of it. Well, the director had also worked with uh, Barker before from his early days. I think that was one of the things that led to him being hired. Yeah. And Barker's fingerprints are all over the second one. Like it, it does feel very much like the second part of the Hellraiser story, even though this is more made up. It's getting away from the original text of the Books of Blood. It still feels very much of the oeuvre of Barker, which I really appreciate. Yeah, but yeah, our protagonists are, are very rarely the actual Cenobites. Yeah. So, like, for the first three movies, we have Kirstie and her family yeah. being revolved in some way or another. Yeah. And then, not, and then, like I say, much the way, like, Friday the 13th has the Paramount era and then the non-Paramount era. Yeah. I think this is the, there's, like, the theatrical era of Hellraiser. Yeah. They're, they're, they're well, these are the New Line films. Yeah. You know, like, New Line had, uh, had made the first two, and then with the third one, we get to Harvey Weinstein and Dimension, and... Well, we'll just talk about that. And later. they still spend money on the effects in these days. Yeah. And yeah, they have these weird stop motion effects. Kind of reminds me of like. Still looks good though. I, I like it. I like it. There's a little percentage of like Peavy's Big Adventure or, yeah. or Evil Dead to that stop motion style. Yeah. But I just I really enjoy it. And some people it takes them out of the movie, but yeah. I like it and yeah. I I stand by it. Yeah. Even the costume designs. Like we haven't even mentioned that. You know the the costume designs of the creatures themselves. Um, that's the, the imagination of that is just wow. Anyways, so I think we're agreed. Um, script wise, is a little bit wonky. Yeah. Character wise, a little bit wonky. Yeah. But it still delivers the Hellraiser goods enough that it gets more than a passing grade. Yes, agreed. In Hellraiser One, Clive Barker showed you his vision of a private hell. In Hellraiser 2, he took you on a journey inside the Inferno. Now, the terror returns in mankind's final confrontation with evil. And this time, it's going to be Hell on Earth.
Hellraiser 3 Hell on Earth from 1992, directed by Anthony Hickox. Yes. Um, if Hellraiser 2 Hellbound, the wheels were getting a little shaky, and this one it gets really raggedy, like it, like almost to, the wheels are falling off by yeah. the end of this movie. Um, I'm, I'm going to start by saying it's Hellraiser enough that as a fan of Hellraiser, I yeah. give it a, a pass. Yeah. But. If you found the second movie a difficult watch, yeah. I would say stop there. There's something strange about the production of this movie. While we were watching it, I asked everyone, was this shot in England and everybody's doing an American accent? Or was the whole thing read up with different actors? Because yeah. there's, especially the first act of this movie, the dialogue isn't just strange by the basis of what they're saying, yeah. but how it sounds. Yeah. It, it, it almost feels like I'm watching a, a Jallo movie that's been badly dubbed, but it's not that. It yeah. just looks and sounds like that. Yeah. And there's something about the color scheme and the sort of weird, sweaty nature of all the people. Everybody glistens in this movie. Yeah. Whether it's they're oiled up. Yeah. Everyone's oiled and glistening, whether they need to be or not. And uh, we get a brief, brief cameo from. Uh, or Christie in the movie, but yeah. basically we get a new lead and Terry Farrell who's an investigative journalist who's looking into the death, yeah. very mysterious death of a kid who was at a club and came into a hospital room with a bunch of chains hanging out of him and basically exploded yeah. in the in the emergency room. She wants to look into this and be taken seriously as a reporter. Yeah. And that's where the movie fails, like at being taken seriously. Because of the weird robotic editing and of the dialogue, like yeah. we're held at arm's length and don't really believe her interactions with her people at work. Yeah. She says that she's unsuccessful, but she's got this amazing apartment in New York City yeah. overlooking the skyline. And uh, like, I'm just, it's not grounded in any kind of real world. Like, when we opened with the family in Hellraiser 1, even though I recognize some of the actors, I kind of believe the dynamics of the family. Yeah. There's the guy who's blindly in love with his wife and his daughter who sees right through her. I get where we are. Here we don't get that. And by the time the movie starts to kick in with this art installation piece, this guy buys to put in his club, yeah. we end up just having to hang out with these characters. And JP particularly, just a despicable, despicable dish, dude. Like, there's nothing to like about, nothing to cheer about. Even with the villains in the first movie, when they're doing stupid things, you understood their motivations. So yeah. she's got to get this guy upstairs. He's got to get killed, and she doesn't want to get caught. So we know why he's doing. This guy, everything he does is him just being a dick. Sort of like he's a Frank replacement. Like, and the actor does the exact same thing. Whether or not the dialogue that he has in a given scene is asking him to be an asshole, he has to deliver the line. Yeah. Like he's an asshole. Yeah. And ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Finally, yeah. finally, yeah. when Pinhead does show up yeah. and shit starts happening, yeah. the movie comes alive for me. Okay. But uh, you gotta wait for it. And uh, if you have trouble with the 80s aesthetic, especially this weird hybrid, because it wants to be a nightclub, but they're playing like 80s hair metal. Yeah. It's like if this club ever existed, it died of shame. Like yeah. uh, it has not aged well at all. Yeah. So there's a lot to get over to get into Hellraiser and Hellraiser. So much so that I'm not sure if I, I'm still liking it on the basis of the boy I was when I saw it instead of the man I am here today. But much like the second movie, I'm going to give it a pass because I think it's got enough decent Hellraiser moments 
that, that I, I, I like that about it. Yeah. But there's a lot of fat on this pig. Yeah. Like, like if I wasn't watching it for the podcast to review, there's just skippable scenes. Oh, yeah. Undeniably, there's just skippable scenes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm pretty lukewarm, but a conditional thumbs up yeah. on three. Uh, I got some problems. Even Clive Barker had some problems. Like it took some convincing for for him to put his name on it. Right. Um, I think he just collected a paycheck because it, it does say Clive Barker presents. presents. But, but um, I I I know Weinstein had to like sit him down and say, hey. We will make more money. I will give you more money if we just put your name on it, even though it's your characters. It does not feel like a Clive Barker story per se. Yes, the Faustian themes are kind of there, but it does feel very much like a slasher film in a lot of ways, especially when Pinhead is released. There's also, and I had problems with this with the second one, especially when um, uh, Kirsty. She, she can now name the Cenobites as Cenobites, but in the first one, there's no mention of them called Cenobites. She just seems to know things just to bring the audience up to speed, yeah. which is critical. And Hellraiser 3 kind of has similar problems. I don't quite understand the monolith, that thing that has, you know, the box and other body parts. Well, the way I understood it was Christy freed the human element of yeah. Pinhead in yeah. the previous movie. Yeah. But the evil part of Pinhead yeah. couldn't be destroyed. Yeah. It was just trapped into this contraption. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a medieval torture device, but it's been repurposed as this weird installation yeah. modern art piece that's yeah. turning and got all these paint faces on it and the cube yeah. and Pinhead obviously. Yeah. Is um, so it needed to be reawakened and resurrected in much yeah. the way that we saw people resurrect in the previous ones. Yeah. Uh, JP brings this woman into his bedroom. He, he gives women roses, seduces them, yeah. has sex with them, throws them away, and treats them like shit. Yeah. And what a thankless part for this actress. Yeah. Like, I wish that they'd given her a little bit better lines, and I wish she had been a little bit better of an actress. Yeah. Or at least that they, they asked us to care about her fate. Yeah. Because the ugliness of JP's character I get, but I felt it go beyond the ugliness of JP's character and just yeah. be part of the movie. Yeah. The movie doesn't give a shit about this girl. Yeah. This girl was stupid for sleeping with him and she deserves what she gets. And that is fucking awful. Yep. Like the misogynist thing is deliberate, but it actually kind of eclipses over. They overplay their hand in that. Yeah. I would have rather when she died, we were like, oh my God, that poor girl. Yeah. And in a weird way, it's almost, she gets skinned alive and eaten by that art piece. And it's almost yeah. a funny moment when yeah. it happens. Yeah. And in a, the uh, previous two Hellraiser movies, it might have looked exactly like that, but it would not have felt yeah. like that. Yeah. When the Cenobites come up and they start killing everybody in the club, yeah. the Cenobites look like Cenobites, but yeah. the way they kill the people doesn't feel right. And nothing ages your movie like having certain technology that was popular at the time. Like one of the Cenobites is like CD Man, who throws CDs at people. Yeah, and ooh, it's like, ugh. And like, there's a camera Cenobite who's got like one eye, you know, as, you know, as the camera. Um, I mean, interesting designs, but it definitely does age your movie. Where one and two, they're made even, you know, a decade earlier and still can pass well. Yeah, it was very early in yeah. special. There's CGI effects. Like Jurassic Park came out the same year. Yeah, as this. So like, 
we're just sort of establishing what we can do. So I'll forgive some of the primitive CGI. Yeah. And like, there's a couple scenes at the very peak of the movie where people kind of warp and bubble, like with yeah. the CGI sort of morphing effect. Yeah. And I think at the time you watched that movie, that was genuinely an eye-popping sort of peak yeah. effect. Yeah. And unfortunately, we are so spoiled by CGI, you know, in the age of Suicide Squad and stuff like yeah. that, that like, that shit don't impress. In fact, we see right through it. Yeah. And unfortunately, unlike other things like the stop motion use, it's not charming yet, if it ever will be. It just looks like primitive CGI, which is what it is. Yeah. I don't know. When the Cenobites are released and they start feasting on the people, it just didn't feel like a traditional Hellraiser film. And that's what, it, to me, it turned into a slasher film, and that's not what the Hellraiser movies are. By all accounts, this was a very rushed production. This was, get him in, and that's one of the reasons why the director was chosen. He's, apparently, he was very good at, you know, let, you know, quick shoots and done. So it does feel rushed. Yeah. Well, and I will also further argue that I think they didn't understand what they had with Hellraiser and focused on the wrong thing. We talked about this with the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, Freddy's yeah. Dead, or Freddy's Revenge, pardon yeah. me. Yeah. They got really excited about the idea of Freddy in the real world, yeah. where the whole thing about Freddy was Freddy in the dream world. In the yeah. dream world, he can do whatever they want. Yeah, I guess it's cool to see Cenobites in the real world, but then they just become slashers. Yeah. I think what Hellraiser fans want is to see Cenobites in their element, yeah. in hell, yeah. like, like doing what they do. What is the average day for a Cenobite? Yeah. Like, they don't always get called to our plane of existence. They'll presumably get called to all sorts of different other ones. Or yeah. When they're not being called to do something, what do they do? Yeah. Like, um, that, which was explored in the second movie, was the real sort of tease, like I said, that yeah. showed how big this world could be and how really everything was on the table as far as whatever monster you wanted to see, yeah. whatever kind of violence or torment you wanted to see. Yeah. And then they said, no, let's make this a slasher movie. Let's have them kill a club full of kids. Yeah. And again, I can have fun watching that, but as a Hellraiser fan, is that what we want? It definitely dials, dials it down a notch. I mean, I do like, I guess, the outer threat that the, you know, the uh, Cenobites endgame is they've been released from hell and they're going to try and take over Earth. So I do like, I guess, those stakes a little bit, but everything on Earth does feel kind of like a false note in a lot of ways. It's, it, it's just not Hellraiser, at least not to me. Yes, it's got Cenobites, but also Penhead also veers into the whole jokey, punchy one line that Freddy Cougar is guilty of. Right. And that's also not Pinhead. Like, no, again, they were smarter yeah. than these these new creations. Yeah. And yeah, the, the buddy that uh, she likes at the, the, the news station, like you say, he, his face gets turned into a camera. Yeah. I think a lot of it is execution problems. There is something yeah. wonky about either the editing or the performance or something in there yeah. that's holding us back initially. But... You can see things getting rickety. Um, I think it might look better in retrospect now because the movie that immediately follows it Ooh. is such a, an like just a an avalanche of bad yeah. and like there's too many ideas, a soup of like confusion. That now knowing all of the other chapters of the Hellraiser world, this still feels like it's actually at least focusing on the Cenobites. Yeah, and I think we're gonna spend a lot of the future reviews saying, "Man, why can't we see more of the Cenobites?" Yeah, yeah. this movie's showing us the Cenobites, but they're like again, it's like 
Freddy Krueger's killing everybody at a pool party, and the Cenobites are killing everybody at this dance club, but yeah. that's that's not the world that we established for them. Yeah. You know, they're saying this is what the kids will want, and we'll get them to come out to yeah, see the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're not wrong, but they've already established that the thing that made Hellraiser unique was that it, it didn't play in that field. Yeah. And that's what this movie's trying to make this do. Uh, and again, unfortunately, they're going to over-course correct moving forward. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about part three? No. Hell on Earth. Um, I, well, I guess I, I do want to mention the end sequence in the church. Um, apparently, they had gotten... Because it is an actual church they destroy. Um, apparently, they had gotten permission from this old church to shoot in there. And even though they... And it took some convincing saying that doing a horror movie and oh yeah it's a Hellraiser movie but somehow they got permission but the um, head the actual minister was there for the shoot and apparently had real issues with what they were doing well, I can imagine inside the church um, it's if yeah like it's I remember a, watching that scene and just assuming it was a set because what no, church would let this happen no that's an actual church that they're that's doing and there's some pretty sacrilegious images that happened that happened there so i think the church no longer exists uh but that is an actual church so well that makes a little little extra tinge of sacrilege there i want to briefly mention paula marshall who played terry okay um i think she gives one of the more well as far as the script goes that character has more of an abc than a lot of the other ones do yeah and i don't think she sucks as an actress and i do think that there's a little bit of sympathy for her but that said when we find out that she's been turned bad at the end of the movie, yeah, I just don't feel anything. Yeah, there's so many scenes in this movie where I feel like I should really feel something here, but I don't. Yeah, no. So uh, as a fanboy of the Hellraiser thing, I, I like seeing the Cenobites go wild, but yeah. uh, it's it's maybe closer to a guilty pleasure. Oh yeah, no, that, that, yeah. That we talked about so far. Centuries ago. A toy maker set out to build the perfect puzzle box. A gift that would bring enchantment to all who possessed it. He never dreamed that this simple toy was the key to the gates of hell. Do I look like someone who cares what God thinks? Now, centuries later, a scientist has unlocked its secret. And the battle for the future of mankind is about to be fought across the boundaries of time. Kevin Yeager, actually, but... Uh, Don't forget Joe Chappelle. Too many cooks were involved in this particular piece of work, and I, I'm sympathetic to somebody saying, look, 
I shot several days on this. There are scenes of mine in this movie, but it is just not fair for my name to be put on this. And it's not just because the movie is bad, which undoubtedly it is. Oh my God. But uh, it's just like, if you're going to have your name on your movie and that's the thing that's going to be like on the record for your personal career, yeah. it should be at the very least your work. So um, even though the film isn't incompetently made, every like I would think all of the problems with it really are like the script, the and, concept, and, and like just how they're they're, they're folding all of these these stories. Yeah. It's ambitious in that we're we we got three different narratives that we're going to be going for here. Yeah, there's one and set. It's two, and it, yeah, the, the, we get the origin of the device, the the cube which summons the Cenobites. Yeah. Uh, in that timeline then we have a modern timeline of this uh, architect who's like building and designs that are somehow related to his ancestor who invented the cube and then we have a far far from future timeline in which a man has just summoned the Cenobites with the hope of destroying them but has been interrupted and the whole movie is being explained to us by this man and it jumps timelines and it has the same actor in each three stories and each three stories resolve and it's in a way like uh what, what was the movie that the which Cloud Atlas? Yeah, it's like a, a Cloud Atlas approach to Hellraiser. Yeah, uh, but just way less talent involved, or or just too ambitious for its budget. Yeah, um, I think the CGI uh, the space field looks fine for the time that this movie came out. Yep, and I don't even think that it's the acting that it's bad. Like it, it just feels like a movie that's been cut and recut and cut and things have been taken and added and taken and added. Yeah. That nobody involved in the production even remembers where they'd started. Yeah. Like, talk about a puzzle box of a movie. This is an unsolvable, unwinnable, yeah. few rewards, few payoffs, yeah. too much talk, not enough action, too much plot, not enough gore. Yeah. It's it's bad. Yeah. Even saying all of that, though, for the Alan Smithy moniker, yeah. Usually if I see a movie that has Alan Smithy on it, I expect it to really be a hard watch. Yeah. And we watched it last night. It was the third Hellraiser movie we watched in that 24-hour period. Yep. And I have to say, my enjoyment did come from laughing at it. Like, yeah. after a point, I just became amused by the incompetence of it. Like, yeah. I was just like, all right, what are we doing now? Yeah. Oh, look, our main character just got decapitated and... Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. Oh, and his wife didn't react at all. Your husband just got decapitated in yeah. front of you. Yeah. How does that make you feel? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. And, uh, you know, the inevitable, like, everybody knows where this movie is going. Everybody knows that he's going to tell his story. She'll be convinced. Yeah. And he's going to pull his trap. Yeah. The only question is, will it work? Yeah. yeah. Right? And you just sit and get increasingly impatient waiting for it to get to the payoff. Yeah. And uh, maybe it was just me fighting my way through it because I was starting to get tired too. Yeah, I was like sort of at war. There was times where I was like, "This is so fucking dumb." Yeah, and then there were other times I was like, "Oh, this is so fucking dumb." Yeah, and I guess what I'm trying to say, if you're in the right mood, this might be a fun watch. Yeah, but for the most part. This is the most purely skippable entry oh. that we have talked about so far. Oh. That is where I'm starting oh. with Hellraiser Bloodline. I want to talk about the word no. No. <laughs> like, Larry, can you say no? No. One more time? No. No. See, a lot more people in this world 
need to hear the word no. Just like from the get-go, the pitch, pinhead in space. No, no, like it just too much. You you, you took too much, too much. Well, look, we reviewed Leprechaun in space, and yeah. I went into that movie with the same reticence, and yeah. like that but is the word. movie that I most value now out yeah. of the Leprechaun franchise. Yeah. So I'm not going to sit here and say. There was no way that this could have worked. Well, I will say that that's not necessarily what we wanted. I still think we want to see the Cenobites in hell. Yeah. But, uh, okay, we're doing Cenobites in space. Let's do that. Okay, but here's the thing. Like, the first three hell mo- movies want you to take it seriously. And there might be the odd little bits of humor, but the tone of it is, you know, serious bloodletting. You didn't feel like they were taking it seriously this time? Uh, in space? No. <laughs> I didn't no, feel like it was jokey particularly. No, it's not jokey, but just the idea that Penhead in the future in space just seems so foreign to me that it just, no. Yeah. No. Well, I don't fight the premise of the movie just specifically. I think what we have here is three movies that they're trying to make one. Yeah. Like, I think that they could have made a movie about the origin of the cube. Yeah. And how it came into be and how it corrupted the people who made it and, and sort of the tragic meaning of that. And they could have made a movie set in modern times about somebody whose bloodline yeah. was attached to the Cenobites. Yeah. And through no far fault of his own. Or fart of his own. Yes. Through no fault. No. Through no fault of his own. Yeah. He gets a cruel fate just because of the family he was born in. Yeah. I think that could have been an interesting horror movie. And I'll disagree with you. Like, I will say that maybe it was possible they could have done an interesting Cenobite in space movie. Yeah. The problem is, is that they should have just made one of those three movies instead of all three of them simultaneously. Yeah. It was clearly out of their hands to achieve that. Okay. But the thing, like, with Leprechaun or even Jason X is that those, like, those movies are silly, silly, silly. Like, so I think it, it, it can allow a leap like that into space where... Hellraiser, for the most part, and I'm laughing as I say this, was grounded either on Earth or in Hell, which is kind of ludicrous. Because it's demons in space, now they've gone too far. What is this, Event Horizon? Fuck you, movie. Oh, Oh, yeah. Oh, hey. Shots fired. Shots Shots fired. fired. Um, But just right from the get-go. Also, and this is the, you know, when a franchise starts explaining the evil more, it just takes away from the mystery of it. I know it was inevitable that we'd get the origin of the lament configuration, the box itself. Right. It just seemed a matter of time. But when you're explaining the universe of the of the monster more, they, they, they cease to be as scary. Whether you're the you know the girl from the ring, whether you're Freddy Krueger, the more you know, the less frightening they And become. again, this is something we talked about with almost every franchise that we've, we've yeah. reviewed. And that's just built into the movies that yeah. go into chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's, there's not a lot of... But they managed to kind of avoid... Well, no, not really, but they managed to like drop little backstories of the Cenobites in the, the first three. It... All I'm saying is like they could have taken the approach yeah. of Event Horizon... Yeah. And made a scary Hellraiser movie on a spaceship. Like yeah. that 
there there is a movie version of that that would work in my head. Yeah. This clearly isn't that. Yeah. But I'm saying that like I don't project it right on its premise. Yeah. Uh, uh, like I, the way the movie actually works, while this guy's telling the backstory, he's already summoned the Cenobites. Yeah. So they patiently just stand around looking yeah. awkwardly at each other for a couple of hours. Yeah. And then once he's finished Having the story, a cup of coffee, yeah. Maybe they go and torture somebody. When he finishes the story, then the other crew goes to investigate the veracity of it, and yeah. then they start getting killed off. But like. Really, all he needed to do to convince him, instead of telling him this elaborate, multi-generational story, is look on the monitor. Yeah. There's a fucking demon. Yeah. Do you believe me? Yeah. You see the demon? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. let's go. Yeah. Like, basic logic questions that were never asked. They asked so many other questions about balancing these three narratives, but, like, yeah. they never asked if any of the three narratives by themselves made sense. So, I don't reject it on the premise. I reject it on the execution. Yeah. Um, I do agree that the jumping from timelines, and maybe it was also like the time of night that we started this, but at one point I did ask, is this present day or is this like in the past? Yeah. And I went, oh, fuck it. This is a Hellraiser movie. Why should I even ask this question? So when it does jump back and forth, after a while, I was just sort of like, uh, I, like I'm trying too hard for a movie that is directed by Alan Smithy. Like, man, um, Chuck Yeager, is that, that's, that's the original director's name? Yes, or Kevin Yeager. Kevin Yeager is an FX legend. Uh, he's, I, I think he helped design the pumpkin head. He helped, uh, he did an awesome uh, makeup effect uh, on Freddy for number two and I maybe three. So this guy's a legend in the horror film community. So it is kind of sad that he had this film taken away from him. Right. By all accounts, his cut was a lot gorier and a lot darker and a lot uh, more straight narrative. Um, I think the Weinsteins got scared and brought in one of their quick talents, Joe Chappelle, to try and fix it, but it only made it worse. Well, in its defense, of all the horror movie franchises to overthink, yeah. I think that Hellraiser is the one that you could get away with it. They, okay. It just didn't benefit them in this one. Yeah. But I am a big believer in not overthinking your Friday the 13th yeah. or your, your next Halloween installment. Yeah. You know what, what What are the goods and how are you going to deliver them? Yeah. I think you have a lot more latitude in Hellraiser, yeah. which was sort of the double-edged sword. When it comes down from the producer mentality, how can we produce a cheap horror movie that will be appealing to the fans? Yeah. That's a different question than how can we make the best of this this entry in the Hellraiser franchise? Yeah. I don't believe anybody sets out to make a terrible movie. I believe everybody had a vision of this movie that was going to work, and it just didn't work out. Also, minor celebrity spotting, Adam Scott. Yep. Adam Scott is a person who is in this movie. Yep. He has a big role. Uh, a fairly significant role. I mean, I, I, I think he's fine. I don't yeah. think he particularly distinguishes himself. No. But this is the first one, and there'll be many more going forward where yeah. we'll see either minor celebrities or people who will become celebrities yeah. get more girly in a Hellraiser franchise. Yeah. This is a failure, but as failures go, I think it's an interesting failure. Yep. And if you can watch and get your head around watching an interesting failure, it is that. No. But I cannot endorse this movie. No, no. I just can't tell you to watch it. No. I can't. I'd seen it a couple times before, and now that it's been done on Rank and Review, uh, honestly, I just can't imagine a scenario where I'd be like, yeah, let's watch Bloodline again. Yeah. No, no, I, I agree with you. I think it's like the, this is, I'm embarrassed to say this, the fourth time maybe I think I've seen this movie. Um, it's for completists and also like for, for searchers of 
bad Hollywood movies where you can see the mistakes up on the screen and, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, also, supporting role from Kim Myers, who's a girlfriend in uh, Nightmare on Street 2. Ah, right! Right! Uh, the woman who's just, like, nails down the chat. Jessie! Jessie! She's not as whiny, though. No, she's fine in this movie, but... Yeah. Just for the record, yeah. for horror nerds out there, yeah. that chick is in this movie too. Uh, <laughs> fun fact. There you go. Good enough? Bloodline. Bloodline it is. All hell is about to break loose again. And this time, a battle between good and evil has a familiar face. Welcome to hell. Hellraiser Inferno. No! Hellraiser Inferno, you said you have a pitch for me. I do, I do. So here's my pitch for the next Hellraiser movie. So it would be called Hellraiser, the passive-aggressive Cenobite. <laughs> and so we would take the plot of Inferno, this, this detective that's quote-unquote bad, but it would be like the bad lieutenant bad, either Harvey Keitel or Nicolas Cage, like way, way bad, way worse than this. And we'd have, you know, like the regular Cenobites, like Pinhead, but we'd have a new Cenobite, the sort of passive-aggressive whiny one. So whenever, like, Pinhead would do, the, like, his thunderous lines, because he's got some juicy lines, like, we'll tear your soul apart. And then we'll have this, like, other Cenobite going, really? Must we? <laughs> Must we? How about we just, like, tickle him with a feather? That would be, like, kind of, like... That's real torture, or like put on like some Miley Cyrus. Well, I'm not sure if I'm if I'm reaching that pitch. I mean, uh, Hellraiser hasn't become that level of self-parody at least yet. I mean, we might get there. There's ten of them that we're going to be reviewing. Yep. But Inferno's a different beast than what we've been talking about so far. It does yep. not seem concerned with the sort of world of the Cenobites or the interworkings of their existence and to me that was always the most interesting part about hellraiser these cenobite creatures and what were they doing and how do you avoid them and how you know where did they come from etc etc what we yeah. have here is a basically corrupt cop version of jacob's net ladder directed by scott derrickson uh yeah. everybody starts somewhere and uh i believe like many of the other hellraiser scripts this wasn't meant originally to be a hellraiser screenplay yeah. And uh, for that, I mean, the Cenobites and the Hellraiser stuff doesn't necessarily seem wedged into the movie. Yeah. And I think Craig Schaefer, who I have said kind of lukewarm things about in the past, is really bringing his performance here, uh, centering yeah. the movie. He's, he's working it hard. I think the two things working against it, I mean, other than the fact that maybe we want more Hellraiser in our Hellraiser is that it is so much Jacob's Ladder that it feels like we've already seen this movie. It's kind of without surprise in that way. And the yeah. other thing being, as you alluded to, he's a bad cop. He's maybe a crooked cop, but he's not as evil as we maybe need him to be for this story yeah. to work. Yeah. 
But in a mid-range, you know, here we are five Hellraisers in, you'd be expecting it to be a real slog or a real hard sit. And I will say that that is not the case. I found it pretty interesting, engaging the whole time way through. I was ahead of the movie. I mean, I kind of figured out what was happening. I mean, there was not a lot of other options considering what we were seeing. But maybe they were going to pull it out at the end. Maybe, you know, something else was going on. But no, I wasn't surprised, but I was entertained enough. I guess that's where I start. Well, I I agree with a a lot of what you're saying. Um, I kind of took this as like the little movie that could, because this movie was, you know, even in 2000 was, I think it was like a $2 million movie, or maybe was a 10. No, I think it was two. It was pretty small budget. And it seemed like at the time, this was sort of a show me uh, kind of contract or movie uh, for Scott Derrickson. And Move he your did word. it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I, I, Jacob's Ladder is obviously one influence. I got a kind of Angel Heart vibe from it too, somewhat. Oh, for sure. Uh, um, I think anyone, uh, you know, especially people like us who have seen a plethora of horror movies more than we probably should in the one could argue that yes you will you will know exactly where this story is going um and i do agree that craig sheffer like he does he does fairly well most of the actors you know did pretty well with what they were given i didn't he's a bad person but he's not as bad as he could have been he's bad he's not evil yes Yes. He cheats on his wife, he does drugs, and he cuts corners in his job, but he's still trying to catch a, a child murderer, and that is yeah. his motivating factor. He may not yeah. be the most likable character in the world, but I don't think he is worthy of eternal damnation and endless, like, secular, or what's the word, secular torment. Um, yeah. And that's basically what we're seeing for him. Yeah. Um, yeah. My guess is that the torment was much more sort of focused on his personal past and his personal sins Uh, in the original draft of the script. And in the Hellraiser draft, we see sexy, tonguey, cinema bite ladies and, you know, weird contortion, one third piece body creatures climbing upstairs to get him. And there's this really ugly, uh, almost admirably Clive Barker-ish run through line to this thing with every crime scene they find a child's finger and yeah. that child's finger has been freshly removed so the child's still alive so the ticking yeah. clock on this is that a child's being tormented <laughs> so yeah. I kind of I, as much as I didn't like like the way he treated his wife or you know think that this would be somebody that I would be friends with I could get on side with him just because he was trying to save the life of a child he, he was going about it in a really shitty way, maybe. But, yeah, Harvey Keitel in Bad Lieutenant, he is not. And that's almost yeah. what this script is asking for here. Yeah. Or, like you no, say, I, Angel Heart, where he was bad, but because of some deal that he's made previously, he doesn't know all of the pieces of his backstory. So it's yeah. a revelation to him, at least, if not to us. Yeah, and I... I, I... I, I think most people would clue in something is amiss the second that he like opens the the, the the lament configuration and all of a sudden he starts having dark visions and then it snaps back into reality like it's spoilers it's no surprise that the second he's opened the box 
it's all a ruse. Like, none of this is really all true. This is all his own personal hell. Yeah. So when it's when it's revealed, once again, spoilers, that the psychiatrist played by the great James Ramar is quote-unquote pinhead, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, like, we all saw this coming. Well, um, part of that, too, is I would not have cast James Ramar in that part. I, I think yeah. he does a decent job of playing it straight, but there's yeah. just something about that actor that we associate with sinister stuff. Like, he's played enough heavies that we don't trust his presence in the movie, even though he seems super yeah. friendly and he's a psychiatrist, and he doesn't do anything to tip his hand for the first couple of scenes. The fact that it's James Remar just kind of makes me go, yeah, another shoe's going to drop here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I do sort of, uh, well, it, it comes back to, though, is because you and I have seen so many of these movies, we're just waiting for the clock. I kind of wonder, and especially in 2000, like the casual viewer, they might have been fooled a little bit, but I, but who knows? Um, I do, there's individual scenes that I really, really liked, though, and that sort of had that Clive Barker vibe. It's early on, and this is right after he's opened the box, and these two sort of nurse-like Cenobites come up, and they slide their hands underneath Schaefer's chest, underneath his epidurus, and they start, like, massaging the chest, and I thought, oh, not only is that creepy, because it's that thin line between pleasure and pain, uh, which is a theme that is recurring to the Hellraiser series, um, but it, it's it's just like nasty and just ah. Yeah, it's every really now and then that. it actually goes farther over the line than you think it will, especially for like uh, whatever mid '90s, early 2000s direct-to-video movie. It, it goes there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will say this though: I found this film stronger than Bloodline and. Probably even a little bit better than Hell on Earth, which is why I can't dismiss it. And I kind of like the fact that they were trying something new. Well, it definitely uh, makes more sense than Bloodline. <laughs> yeah. And yes. uh, it definitely has stronger characters and, and like a, a, B, and C than than Hellraiser 3, or Hell World as we're calling it. Yeah. So yes, in that way it's better than those two, but it's a worse Hellraiser movie and that it's not really about the Hellraiser themes to me. Yeah. It depends on what you want from your Hellraiser. As we've said, moving forward with these movies, a lot of these scripts weren't originally Hellraiser scripts to begin with. They're being augmented and forced into being Hellraiser scripts. And we're seeing increasingly the Cenobites taking a side sort of peripheral role. It's almost like uh, these are Twilight Zone episodes being hosted by Pinhead as we move forward. And uh, that can work, and that that's its own thing. But to me, it's different than Hellraiser 1 and 2, specifically. That sort of charged, epic, fantasy, gore, eroticism, all in one sort of box. That's, yeah. like, for me, what I want out of my Hellraiser, and what I hope out of the new, recently announced reboot of Hellraiser that they're doing here. Yeah. So hopefully yep. they get to that again. Um, I don't mind these movies for what they are, but uh, I guess I always want a Hellraiser movie to be a Hellraiser movie. It's like they did that Friday the 13th TV series, yep. but it wasn't Friday the 13th the TV series. It might have been a good series of itself, but for me as a kid, because it wasn't about Jason Voorhees killing people at Camp Crystal Lake, 
my excitement for it dropped significantly. I can still get into these Hellraiser movies, but I would much rather explore the hellscape like they did in Hellraiser 2 than the broken psyche of Craig Schaffer in, in, in this particular one. Does it mean it's bad? No, it's different. How dare they be different, Beckman? Another thing that uh, is just tired about this type of character is I think there could be different ways and we could find his personal corruption. Like, he cheats on his wife with prostitutes, he does drugs, and he is abusive to his criminal informant. Like, I don't know, like, it seems like there's a textbook for how you portray crooked cops in movies, and this is how you do it. I think, like, it would be much more interesting, like, if he had an anger problem. And he was, like, basically a good cop, but he would always let his anger win, right? This sort of... He had a fatal flaw that was exploited that became his undoing. And instead, he has a bunch of these little kind of irritating, like, qualities to his character that tell us he's not good. But he doesn't earn his fate. I think that uh, the ending would be stronger, I, if like not only was that oh my god that's a horrible fate but we could also say it's a horrible fate but you made your bed lie in it yeah because no, I think that's I, what I they're going for right well I mean if you look at the other people uh, in the other Hellraiser films that had opened the box with the exception of the toy maker who, who essentially defeats Penhead most of those people were murderers <laughs> Yep. Uh, like huge hedonists uh, that had really, really crossed the line. So when you get to the Schaefer's character, yeah, there's there's, there's still nobility in him. And where other villains were actively seeking out the hell world, they wanted to be yeah. a part of it. Whereas he sort of stumbles into it. Now that yeah. seems to be a rule of the world. If you fuck with that box, it doesn't really matter. Although he does refer to the girl in part two as an innocent. Uh, yep. So, I don't know. I, I guess you couldn't call Sheffer an innocent character, but he's different. He's on a different level than most of the villains we've seen in the series. Yeah. Yep. And again, I felt like uh, I reviewed uh, Night, or sorry, Nightbreed a while ago with uh, Debray, actually. Yeah. And I kind of was a little bit lukewarm on Sheffer. He seemed to always play these kind of, like, jockey-bully roles. And yeah. uh, I wasn't sure how comfortable he was in in, in holding a lead. This is yeah. probably five or ten years later, obviously, this Hellraiser movie. And I kind of take it back. I believe that Craig Schiffer has the game. I think he just needs the right script to help him through it. Yeah. Um, so, I'm sorry, Craig Schiffer. You've redeemed yourself. I appreciate you being in Hellraiser 5 and giving it your all. Some actors would just kind of like shrug it off. Nicholas Turturro's in this movie as his friendly partner, and I feel yep. like that's an autopilot performance, right? That's like, yeah. I'm the friendly partner who gets killed, and uh, I'm not going to work hard at this at all. <laughs> He's not a bad yep. actor, but I think Sheffer's bringing it. He's trying. Not everybody here is. He's actually really, really good in this little scene movie called Bliss with Cheryl Lee and Terrence Stamp. Um, it's a little like it, it's a totally underseen gem. It's it's about it's a mature film about human sexuality and trauma, and all three leads are amazing. Uh, I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. Um, I was blown away about 
especially for American cinema, how mature that is. But Schaefer's really good. But let's get back to Inferno before we <laughs> get way off course here. I mean, um, I don't, I don't no, know what um, more I have to say. It, it, it does the job. It will, it'll be familiar to you, I think, if you're a horror-savvy audience. But it's yeah. totally worth watching. Especially Scott Derrickson has gone on to some pretty interesting things. So oh, if you yeah. want to sort of, you know, go back to that. I mean, it's not it's not sinister, right? You know, it, it's not some of the things that he would go to after this. But you can yeah. tell that he's talented right away. Oh, yeah, no. And like I said, this is a $2 million movie. Uh, and it was part of the whole Weinstein... Uh, I, you know, I'm going to sign you for one or two or you know, picture, picture deals and show me. Like, he won the job with his pitch and then did a sizzle, sizzle reel, as it's called, where he shot one scene. And why? And Weinstein said, okay, here you go. So it does feel like his first big movie in a, in a lot of ways. It's still a small, small movie. So it's, I, I, I kind of had this, this is a little film that could. Here's this, here's this guy giving this chance to show what he's got with a very limited budget, and he pulls it off. Um, yeah, that's kind of where I fall. Um, it's not exactly a, a Hellraiser movie. It doesn't follow the same tropes, but it's not bad. No, no. And some of the things that will, going forward, I mean, I'm going to work D because I like the genre, but it's going to get rockier moving forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good enough? Good enough. And so ends the first part of my Hellraiser retrospective. Big thanks to Lee Beckman, who's always enthusiastic to participate. And we're going to raise some more hell next uh, Wednesday, the Wednesday after next, or I guess it depends on when you're listening. Next episode, there'll be more Hellraiser, I promise. Please send that feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com, that's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Check out the website at rankinreview.ca. And tell your other nerdy movie friends about the podcast. I'm your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, and thank you so very much for listening to my show.